Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. On Chewing the Fat, we think a lot about food and how it sustains us. Yes, for the future of our planet, but also for the people before us and who we are right now. This is especially true these days, as I think about all the ways people like farmers, restaurant and grocery store workers, or volunteers in mutual aid networks are taking care of people in need. I think also about how we take care of ourselves and our loved ones. How what we eat right now might comfort us. Not just because it tastes delicious, but because it can emotionally resonate and connect with the story of our own personal resilience, or an even broader history. That's why I'm so excited to share this week's episode by podcast manager Lin Nguyen. Lin covers the story of Bun Mi, the popular Vietnamese sandwich. It's been a food that has comforted her, but even more so, lets her see a powerful story of people traversing war, immigration, and finding hope. Take a listen. Bun Mi. It's a Vietnamese sandwich, and along with pho, it's one of the most recognized dishes at Vietnamese restaurants nowadays. It's one of my favorite dishes from my childhood. My mom would make bun mi at home for lunch, and she still does when I go home every once in a while. The aroma of freshly toasted bread, homemade pickled carrots and pork cold cuts, the combination of the flavors and textures, it all tastes and smells like home. Behind this savory treat, there's a fascinating history of the Vietnamese people from the time of French colonization to refugee migration in the wake of the Vietnam War. Emerging from this history, Ben Mi becomes a kind of symbol or a testament to the innovation and resilience of the Vietnamese people. So what exactly is this food? In Vietnamese, Ben Mi actually just means bread. But today, we associate Ben Mi with the Vietnamese sandwich, made with bread that's sprinkled with a bit of soy sauce and mayonnaise or butter, and then stuffed with vegetables like pickled carrots and daikon, cilantro and fresh cucumber, as well as with protein sources like pork cold cuts. There's not exactly a single ensemble of ingredients that qualifies a bun mi as a bun mi. In fact, adaptability is one of its defining features. Adaptation was at the core of bun mi's conception way back in the 19th century. From the French colonial era, bun mi started with the importation of French wheat. It's often used to satisfy the colonial needs, so the colonial masters who had a French diet based on bread. And so that was something that was brought and imported into Vietnam within this context of colonialism. You just heard from Quang Zheng, a professor in the Ethnicity, Race, and Migration program at Yale University. As a colonial product, wheat was a luxury item intended for the rich. But the Vietnamese also made banh mi their own by cutting rice flours into the wheat flours in order to make a more crisp bread, more fluffy. And so if you now take a comparison between a traditional French baguette and a Vietnamese banh mi bread, you'll notice the consistencies are very different. They also taste very differently. So banh mi kind of emerged as a Vietnamese adaptation to French colonialism during the 19th and 20th centuries, forming this part Vietnamese, part French innovative dish. 
And this kind of cultural exchange can even be found in the etymology of the term banmi. In Vietnamese, ban means cake or any product made out of rice flour, which is dominant in Vietnam. Mi means wheat. So if we put these two words together, we have the combination of rice and wheat. In a way, the combination of Vietnamese and French. But it would be oversimplifying the racial power dynamics of this historical period if we only saw banh mi as a neat example of cultural merging. What else comes to light when we look at the colonial origins? There are a lot of things that I find really fascinating about banh mi as an argument, as a, a symbol. Sulejo, restaurant food critic for the San Francisco Chronicle and co-founder of the podcast Racist Sandwich, has some ideas about these questions of power. Because people think of it as fusion. They think of it as a marriage, or they use this very soft terminology, I think, when describing it as something that came fortuitously, harmoniously through that French-Vietnamese relationship. When really, I mean, the power dynamic of colonizer and colonized is a lot more violent, right? It's a lot more exploitative, and it takes more. It's more vampiric than that. It's not as pleasant as um, you shook your hands and now there's a sandwich. <laughs> um, it is, you know, banh mi and pho, too, which is used from, historically, it was a way to use up, like, the refuse from these French kitchens, these French homes. You know, they wouldn't eat the bones, or, like, that's what Vietnamese people had from from beef. And so they would make it into soup to make it stretch longer, you know, and that's why, like, it's kind of scrappy. It's a scrappy kind of dish because people are really... Even in the worst sorts of circumstances, they will find a way to feed themselves. And I find that really powerful. Banh mi wasn't immediately accessible to the entire Vietnamese populace, though, by virtue of its imported wheat ingredient and labor-intensive production method. It took time for banh mi to proliferate and ultimately become what we would call today a street food. The northern and southern regions of Vietnam also had different responses to banh mi. Banh mi in the north was eaten as a side, just a part of a meal. On the other hand, the banh mi of the South developed to resemble the sandwich we know today, a meal complete with meat, pickled vegetables, and pate, among other ingredients. Why did this kind of development happen? Professor Chung thinks that regional differences in approaches to food has something to do with it. Part of it has to do with the food culture in the South. And banh mi, before 1975, became a part of the food landscape. People had a lot of access to that because it was a street food, as what you would call it today. But it was also an industry that had multiple players, uh, multiple actors. It was a very divided industry in the sense that people who bake bread, that's a craft, right? It was a craft for them. And then people who sold the bread on the street, that was a different economy. And people who baked bread oftentimes did not make the banh mi to be sold on the streets. Different economies then developed around the sandwich. And with this development, there was a move away from the original purpose of banh mi to please colonial tastes and towards a new goal to make and sell sandwiches that cater to the local taste. Food, in terms of migration and thinking about how food developed, the local context matters. And the different ways in which people consume banh mi is an example of how local diets and local preferences transform the food. A bit earlier, Professor Zhang mentioned that she was talking about banh mi before 1975, before the Vietnam War. Then, 
Two governments, the Communist North and the pro-Western South, were fighting for who could decide the political future of the entire country. Following the North's takeover in 1975, the country became unified as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. The new government had complete control over the economy. What did this mean for Benmi makers and shop owners then? In the years after the end of the Vietnam War, many of the bakeries that make the banh mi were shut down. And they were largely, because the Socialist Republic of Vietnam was a controlled economy, state-controlled economy, so many of these entrepreneurial spaces couldn't exist. Many of the people who used to own these bakeries had to improvise to make their livelihoods. And so you can see the rise of what is known in Vietnamese as banh mi thông phi. And banh mi thông phi is basically the larger baking houses were not available any longer. People improvised by using oil drums into baking ovens. So they basically cut the bottom of the drums so that that's a place where they can put woods in. And then on the top of it, that's where they put the dough in. And they made it, so banh mi didn't die, but it moved into a different form. It's a form that speaks to the ingenuity of the people who were faced with a controlled economy and couldn't produce things the ways that they did before. After 1975, hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese people fled their homeland in the new political regime. As they escaped secretly, many were first picked up by refugee camps in various places in Southeast Asia. Even in these refugee camps, banh mi persisted. Professor Zhang told me a particularly meaningful anecdote about this that she had encountered in her research on the Vietnamese diaspora. I was surprised to see that in the refugee camps in Southeast Asia, banh mi was also one of the more easily found product. And mind you, these are camps on islands that didn't really have any kind of facility. But people with the knowledge of how to make banh mi who made it out of Vietnam were able to create and recreate and participate in the camp economy vis-a-vis the production of banh mi. I remember there was an interviewee who recalled a childhood experience. He, He was 10 years old in the camp. And one of the jobs that he had at the time was to sell banh mi in the camp because they would go to the, we call la banh mi, and get it from the people who made them and sell it back to the camp. Even in moments of great despair, incertitude, and desolation, people still managed to find ways to recreate a sense of home through food. After leaving the refugee camps, many Vietnamese became refugees in the United States Western Europe, Australia, among other places. And many banh mi shop owners from the south of Vietnam were part of this mass migration. They brought with them their cultural traditions from back home, their food. So began the introduction of banh mi to Western countries, and in particular to the U.S., which now has the highest population of overseas Vietnamese. The example that you can think of is the migration of banh mi ba lẻ. Banh mi ba lẻ was a very well-known establishment in Saigon, and the owner fled to the United States and recreated that banh mi space in the U.S. So banh mi became one type of gateway for Vietnamese refugees to use the skills they already had to enter new economies and integrate into new communities. I think banh mi as a core in itself is a food of the working class. 
people in Vietnam who didn't have much money could still afford a relatively well-rounded diet based on a, a bánh mì. And the fact that it survived the migration to the United States is to speak to the survival of the people who had managed to not only reestablish themselves in a new society, but also creating new things with it as well. That's right. There was yet another round of innovation and creation in the development of this sandwich, another story of adaptation in addition to resilience. The banh mi that was being made in the U.S. wasn't always an exact reproduction of what it was like in the homeland. Banh mi makers also introduced their own personal changes to the dish as they adapted to serving their new communities. With many people having different interests and bringing different interpretations into the making of the banh mi in the U.S., you also have different versions of banh mi. And those versions sometimes may not correlate to what people Envision is the traditional banh mi, but they are also a form of fusion that is part and parcel to their time. As Vietnamese communities developed, such as in northern and southern California, as well as Texas, more and more banh mi shops started up as well. Some family-owned businesses, like Lee's Sandwiches, adopted a franchise model, enabling people to create other new establishments using the technique for banh mi production. We can think of the proliferation and popularity of banh mi in the U.S. economy and food taste as a kind of immigrant success story. With this Vietnamese dish becoming accepted and integrated into the American food landscape, the Vietnamese people and their stories have also been illuminated within their American communities. The fact that it made itself into mainstream U.S. culinary parlance means that a certain degree, there is visibility of these immigrant communities, right? And the visibilities of these people are not just about the food that they're able to bring, but also the kind of narrative that is attached with that. And studying Manmi historically, but also sociologically, will enable us to see the different kinds of relationship that this particular food can gather. Despite such an upsurge in popularity, though, it's important to recognize the success of a dish is still pretty far from the social and political advancements that communities might want. It's something of a start, though. What, then, might explain banh mi's popularity? Professor Chang has a few ideas. First, the affordability of it is one thing that made this a food that remains in high demand. A second thing has to do with the ways in which the entrepreneurs who are creators of banh mi, or who, who make banh mi, who sell banh mi, adapt, right? The move from family-owned small establishment to a franchise model enable people to create new establishments with little specific knowledge because with the context of a franchise, a lot of the ingredients and all of these other materials are already prepared and they just are delivered to the location of the franchise. So that create a more adaptable model for other people to adapt and to create that particular economy. Another reason why banh mi also proliferate and is successful is because, again, the United States is a site where we are encountering so much diversity, right? And that diversity, when it catches the right audience, will also expand. And banh mi has that ability to capture the imagination of the people who are responding to it. We'll be right back. 
Hey, I'm your host, Erwin Lee. If you're enjoying this episode so far, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Your support empowers and inspires us to tell more stories and reach more people like you. In other words, you're helping us be us. Thank you for listening. Now back to the show. It's also worth considering that ben mi has become so popular even at non-Vietnamese establishments. The dish presents a kind of fascination for people outside the Vietnamese community. I wanted to understand how ben mi bakeries in the U.S. today are responding to the popularity of this sandwich. How ben mi makers are continuing the process of innovation to capture the imagination of the people, as Professor Chung put it. So, I met with Du Quyeng, who started his own restaurant in New Haven, specializing in ben mi. It's called Duke's Place. So Duke, what are you making? I'm preparing a tofu sandwich. It's a lemongrass tofu. <laughs> I won't get too in your way. <laughs> After he's done making the last banh mi for the day, he offers me a cup of tea, and we sit down to chat about how he ended up as the head chef and owner of a banh mi place. In my heart, like I'm always a, a scientist, and science has, has been a big part of my life. Duke had spent 13 years as a cancer biology researcher at Yale School of Medicine before opening his shop in 2016. But aside from that, I'm always curious about a lot of other things. And one of that is cooking, which I, I love, and I always entertain people, family, friends, with like fancy dinner and whatnot. And that's always been in the background. And I don't know, I think just one day I, I just feel comfortable about jumping, starting a restaurant. And the banh mi is sort of my introduction into this culinary world. It was a bold move. He had no experience in the restaurant business beforehand, but he was fascinated by banh mi. I mean, I, I love banh mi when I was living in New York. And I, I know that there was a trend uh, starting in the West Coast. The banh mi was getting really popular with Americans. So I, I thought I would start something small and learn from there. Duke's science background definitely played a large role in his foray into the restaurant industry. So as a scientist, I started experimenting, just developing recipes, just from ideas, uh, just just from what I know and what I would want the food to taste like. And one of the biggest hurdles is developing the recipe for making the, the baguettes, the, the bread. So I had spent like basically the whole summer trying to come up with a decent bread recipe. And in my research, like I know like a lot of recipe calls for wheat flours with a mix of rice flours. And I tried all sort of ways of trying to make it. But it's still, I, I just had a hard time coming up with the right texture and, and taste of the bread. So I decided to start from scratch and just be, started out with very simple ingredients, you know, wheat flours and salt and yeast and just go on from there until I could really develop the right bread texture and actually it took me i broke my my home oven <laughs> trying to ex basically i experimented day and night <laughs> uh, 
yeah, it ended up breaking the entire oven, so it, it basically cracked in half. <laughs> uh, so I ended up buying a new one, and so it, it was quite a challenge. After months of trial and error, Duke eventually fine-tuned his banh mi recipe to meet his standards. And now... He makes the bread fresh every morning before opening the shop. So that was the bread roller? Duke has also expanded his menu to offer several protein options. Five types of meat, Hanoi grilled fish, and even two vegetarian options. A pretty wide variety of choices to accommodate a mix of dietary preferences from his customers. He also places a lot of emphasis on using quality ingredients for his banh mi. Yes, so the concept that I want to do cooking is it has to be fresh. Because when I left uh, science at Yale, I was doing a lot of research on metabolism, uh, metabolic diseases, and things like that, like obesity and diabetes. So as a scientist, I'm very aware of food quality and how food affects health and lifestyle. So with that in mind, I want everything to be fresh and high quality to ensure like people are eating healthy. So in some ways, that also affects the way my approach to making the banh mi's because I modify it so that it can be a little bit more healthier. In what, way? In what sense? Sort of, love, I, I found like, like the liver pate, which has a lot of fat in it, and also a lot of other version of banh mi's, they have people put in mayonnaise. So for my version, uh, I leave those out and just let the banh mi's carry on the flavor of the meat. Duke's experimenting with both the bread recipe and what he chooses to put inside the banh mi is a lot like the entrepreneurial adaptability of the sandwich that Professor Chung was talking about earlier. He's combined his scientific knowledge with his culinary practice to shape a banh mi that's consistent with his nutritional priorities and caters to his community's various tastes. Apart from the science, I think what struck me most was the sentimental value Duke placed on his banh mi making. Another inspiring idea for this shop is based on my childhood memories. Like a lot of the things that I offer is a reflection of my memories of, of my childhood. Uh, so basically, my brothers and I grew up in Vietnam, going to school there, and every morning my mom would send us off to school with a little money to go down the street and buy street food. And one of that very popular option is the, the banh mi's. And I, I still distinctly remember the flavor and the, the smell, the taste of the food that, that we buy for lunch. So a lot of that I, I try to recapitulate here at the restaurant, just based on memory uh, for what it was like. Memory. That's probably the biggest thing that stood out to me as I went about talking to Soleil and Professor Jung as well. Although each had rather different associations with banh mi, they all related their attachment to banh mi back to childhood memories. Banh mi is interesting, right? Because when I was growing up, banh mi just meant sandwich. You know, like my grandmother would make me like a 
cold cuts mun me with like butter and cheese. You know, that was just what it was. And so when I got older, people associated that word with Vietnamese sandwiches in particular, which I had to adjust to. <laughs> Professor Chung also has some nostalgia when it comes to bun mi. Yeah, I remember. So in front of my house when I was growing up in Vietnam, there was a, a bun mi truck. And in the morning, that's what we would have for breakfast. And we would eat very quickly the bun mi from the, the nice lady. I can't remember her name anymore. But then after that, we'd go to school. I remember being really excited to... When I moved to the U.S. in California, in Southern California, I didn't have to stop eating bun mi because at the time there was already a chain that existed in the Little Saigon area, and that's bun mi kali. And when I moved from California to Connecticut, for example, it was much harder for me to have access to bun mi. So I still have um, my family members when they do come and visit me to bring bun mi kali with them. So that I could eat, even though I could still, you know, I could get bun mi here in Connecticut. But there's something about spending many years eating that particular bun mi from California that gave me a different kind of attachment to it. It's amazing how much our memories of home are embedded in certain foods, certain tastes, and how those sentiments can be rediscovered or resurrected when we have those foods again. An association with home is what really imbues bun mi with its value for me as well. Before the COVID-19 outbreak, I'd been studying abroad for the semester in Paris. And though I do love a good quiche lochen or a freshly made crepe for lunch, I was often on the lookout for Vietnamese places to eat, and bun mi shops in particular. After my classes at the university, I would sometimes head a few blocks over to a hole-in-the-wall bun mi bakery, where I would order my favorite, a bun mi dak bier. The lady at the counter would recognize me and ask how I was doing in Vietnamese. It's always a joy to hear your language when you're in a foreign place. She'd hand me the freshly made sandwich, and in one crunch, with the flavors of the bread and the dalua and pate and otua and cilantro all combining together in the distinctive taste of the banh mi, I'd be reminded of the feeling of being back at home in California for the summer, making banh mi with my family for lunch on a weekend. Everyone gathered around the table, talking and laughing. And yes, complicated power dynamics still exist in a world where Vietnamese ladies are selling bun mi's to French customers in Paris. But reclamation is in order, as bun mi becomes a kind of window of light that illuminates the stories of people, that adds depth to the story of immigration and placemaking. I guess the enjoyment I get from eating bun mi and seeking it out in Paris, of all places, is really born out of a wish to connect with the Vietnamese people, to have a taste of home. I've actually returned back home to California now, with everything going on with COVID-19. It's a time, more than ever, to be home making bend me with loved ones. Sustainable Food Program. This has been Chewing the Fat. This episode was produced by Alexa Stanger, Amy Zhang, Lin Nguyen, Thomas Hagen, and myself, Erwin Lee. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. 
artwork by Logan Howard, program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to Salejo, Quan Zheng, and Duke Nguyen for chatting with us for this episode. We'll see you in two weeks.